And now, Father, we come to your word and we ask you, Holy Spirit, do what we just sang. Come and your people bless and give your word success in our hearts. Change us, O Lord. Help us to see who we are as you see us. And then by your grace and your kindness toward us, enable us to repent and to believe and to put all of our hope not in the things of this life, but in the promises of God found in his word. Oh Lord, may this book be the anchor of our soul. May it be our joy and may it be our law. May it be the source of all conviction to our hearts and may it be a treasure of wealth and spiritual life. Give us hearts, Father, to receive it, I pray, so that you will be glorified in a changed and holy people, for we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. I know you just sat, but I would like for you to stand again, and we are going to read this text. I will read it, and you can follow along with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under a cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, this people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in, a, in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. And were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. Upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. I confess this morning it is not my intention to expound this text as I normally do, I want to reserve that for next week, but rather pick up on a theme of this text and use this as an opportunity to take you other places in Scripture to see what I believe the Holy Spirit would have us see as we look into his word this morning. This is a message that we all need to hear because we all claim to be worshipers of Jesus Christ. We all claim to exist for this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and that means worship. And so before we look deeply into this text of Scripture, I want to point out a key theme that Paul has been touching on from the beginning of his thinking back in chapter 8. Paul is concerned about something we tend to think doesn't apply to us enlightened, Western, uh, modern, educated men and women. It's something that we think speaks only to people who live in primitive societies or lands where paganism reigns. It is the issue of idolatry, the issue of idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, if you were to look it up in the dictionary as I did this week, it's a very simple definition. Idolatry is the worship of idols or false gods. Anytime we worship a false god, we are engaging in idolatry. If you know anyone who has attempted to serve as a missionary in India or China, or Japan, or any of the eastern countries, perhaps the Philippines, then you have probably heard some strange stories about the worship of, idol, of idols. Um, people worship all kinds of things. People worship snakes, and 
cattle and monkeys and trees and bugs. In fact, in some places, the general populace is facing starvation by the millions because they worship the rats who eat their grain and they worship the cattle who could be a source of nourishment if they were allowed to use them for the purpose for which God created them, which, of course, was hamburger or steak or your preference. But this is idolatry. It's idolatry. And it has existed since the very beginning of time. For Christians, it almost goes without saying that we understand God hates idolatry. In fact, we will remember the first two commandments that God gave Israel on Mount Sinai way back in the early day when God rescued them out of Egypt. The first two commandments seem to be salient points for this message. Number one, you shall have no other God besides me. First commandment, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. And commandment number two, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There's no pluralism here. There's no syncretism here. There's no tolerance here. God, when it comes to worship, God is an intolerant God. There should be no other God who is worshipped by man. Nevertheless, Israel really struggled with this command. In fact, while Moses was receiving these commands on the mountain, the people were already at the base of the mountain doing something worshipful. You know what that was? They were creating for themselves a golden calf. And they said, this is the God who brought us from Egypt. And so understand, it's not that they were saying, forget the God who brought us out of Egypt, this is now our new God. Rather, what they were saying was, the God who brought us out of Egypt is worthy of our worship through the symbol of this golden calf. And God hated it. God hated it. It's as if God were saying, you want to make me out to summarize all that I am? by the symbol of a cow, an ox, a calf. And so no symbol was allowed to be used. No image, graven or otherwise, was to be worshipped or to be used as an object of worship. And so judgment fell on the house of Israel right there at the base of Mount Sinai because of sin. And many, many Israelites died. Now, while they lived in Egypt, Israel learned to worship like the Egyptians when in Rome, right? And so that's what they did. I mean, so many of them grew up. I mean, every person who was alive of the, the sons of Jacob came out of Israel. They were born in Israel. They, they lived there for 400 years. Every one of them knew nothing else other than growing up in Egypt. And they had adopted their practices of worship, many of them. In fact, idolatry was the main reason um, that God sent the plagues. Every plague was an attack on an Egyptian god. And the the people, however, didn't learn, even at Mount Sinai, and so judgment fell upon them. In fact, at the, that was at the beginning of their life, their relationship with God. Forty years later, in fact, actually longer than that, much hundreds of years later, after they had already entered the promised land, the whole 40 years in the wilderness already took place. Everything happened about crossing the Jordan River and taking Jericho and Ai and then scattering and taking hold of the promised land. Years after all of that had happened, the people fell back into idolatry. In fact, it was idolatry that was the main reason God then kicked his people out of the promised land and sent them to live into bondage 
sent them to live in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. And through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord explains why. He understood that the people would ask, why, why, why are we being taken from the promised land? Now understand the context here. Understand the history of Israel here. Judah, the southern tribe, Judah already understood that God was willing, if necessary, to curse his own people. How do we know that? We know that because he already destroyed Israel, the northern tribe, the northern kingdom, so that all that was left was Judah below in the area around Jerusalem. And God warned Judah, if you continue to worship idols like your sister did, then I will take you from the promised land. This I promised you from the beginning. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will bring upon you the plagues that I brought upon the people living in the land of promise when you got there. And you will be held captive. Jeremiah writes, now, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. Now, when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? And what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? And then you will say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my word. You should just underline that in your mind. They have not obeyed my word. And then he says, you too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. And so I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will not grant favor to you. Jeremiah 16. It is worthy of note here that after God delivered Israel from Babylon 70 years later, they would never again worship idols. There was one attempt when they came out. And Ezra and Nehemiah put the kibosh on that really quick. What? Have we learned nothing from 70 years of bondage? But Israel learned a lesson, not the most important lesson, but they learned this. Worshiping idols as people of God, bad thing. Don't do that. We don't want God to destroy us. We don't want God to send us into captivity. So you know what they did? They stopped bowing down to idols. No more in the history of Israel do you find them bowing down to idols. They became scrupulous about anything that would show up among them that looked like an idol. And it is that way to this very day. To this very day. Yesterday, my wife and I were uh, walking with Mikey. We went over to JPS Hospital uh, to spend some time with um, some of the Helms family uh, where Peter is, is still in the hospital. And on our way back to the car, we parked several streets away, um, and we passed a cemetery. And I've seen the cemetery because I've driven past it many times going to that hospital. And there's a sign out front that, that indicates that it's a Hebrew cemetery. It's a Jewish cemetery. And so as we were walking by, uh, I was trying to explain to Mikey you know, who the Hebrews are and that the Hebrews are a special people in God's sight. And this is a Hebrew cemetery. And there's even words, you can see them, scrawled into the tombstones that are written in a funny language called Hebrew. And he wanted me to show him, and so I did. And, uh, you know, we pointed out a couple of things, and I told him, gee, I don't, I don't read Hebrew very well, so I can't tell you what it says, but that's what it looks like. And as we were walking away, I kind of grabbed my wife's hand, and I said, hey, you guys notice anything unusual about this seminary? Cemetery? I always say seminary. I've been there, and it just reminds me so much of a cemetery. Um, yeah, okay, that wasn't bad. Um, so I said, hey, do you recognize anything here that's different 
I mean, is there anything missing in this cemetery? And it just struck me. There were no statues, not one. I mean, when was the last time you went to a, a cemetery and didn't see a statue of Mary or Jesus or one of the saints or a hundred different statues of the saints and different people? Not in this cemetery. Not one. I don't even think there was a statue of a flower or a tree. There was no image, none, just stone with carved words in English and in Hebrew. And I thought to myself, this is the lesson that Israel learned. But they didn't learn the whole lesson. And Paul knows very well that all of us need to learn the real lesson. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul begins his discussion about whether it's permissible to eat food sacrificed to idols. And this theme of idolatry goes all the way through here. And again, I'm just using our passage as a launch uh, into this subject this morning. Next week, we will come back and dissect this text verse by verse. But notice with me the context, eight chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things that are sacrificed to idols. Verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? And then in chapter 9, he takes on the whole issue of liberty and rights. But then in chapter 10, he gets into, he goes back to this theme of idolatry. And he reminds us of what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. That they had all of these privileges. They walked under the cloud. They passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses In the cloud and in the sea, they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. They had all of these privileges, but it didn't keep them from their idolatry. They were God's chosen people, but it didn't keep them from their idolatry. Notice with me in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 18, verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idol, to an idol is anything? That an idol is anything? No. I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And then go back to verse 7, and here's his main point. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, we'll look at that specifically next week. But let's just think about this idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Let's remember also that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to a Gentile church, not a Jewish church, a Gentile church living in a blatantly pagan culture where idols stood practically everywhere you looked. And so idolatry was a very real issue for that Gentile church But you know what? It's the same issue that plagues the church of today. The issue that plagued the church of Corinth, that plagued the church of Ephesus with their great temple of Diana, it is an issue that has to be addressed by every Christian no matter when or where he lives. Because we can escape a land of idolatry, but wherever we go, we take our hearts with us. You see, it's important to realize that in the mind of God, idolatry is not something people do simply when they bow down before a statue. It's not so much about taking an offering and laying it on an altar. In in chapter 8, it was food sacrificed to an idol, which they would then consume. And then the big controversy among the Christians was, is it okay to eat that because we know the idol is nothing? That's not the issue. 
Mostly, idolatry is something that happens in the heart because sin is always a matter of the heart. It is always, first of all and foremost, an issue of the heart and not an issue of our behavior, at least not first of all. The behavior is always coming from the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's out of the abundance of the heart that a man is defiled. We don't look to our hearts for purity. We don't look to our hearts for guidance. The same Jeremiah said in chapter 17, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? It is not the statue that offends God. But what happens in the heart of his people who bow down before an image that matters to God? And this has always been the case. In fact, God made it clear that it was even the case all the way back in the Old Testament. Now remember, we talked about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet leading up to and during the captivity of Judah in 586. B.C. But you know what? There was another prophet who lived during the same time. And though Jeremiah was kind of kidnapped by his friends and taken to Egypt, which he told everyone was expressly forbidden by God, God wanted them to go to Babylon, and then he would bring them back. But he was whisked off to Egypt. But there was another prophet living at the same time, and his name was Ezekiel. Turn back to Ezekiel with me because Ezekiel touches on a very important subject. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which was also written by Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14, to be specific. I want us to look at Ezekiel chapter 14 because Ezekiel understood what idolatry was all about because God revealed it to him. It wasn't primarily about bowing down before an idol. It was something that was going on in the heart. And it was the heart motives, the heart's desires, the issues of the heart that were causing them to bow down. And so the idols were gone, at least the idols they had in Israel. And now they're in Babylon. And here's what was happening. Living in Babylon... They had some freedom to live there and to be a people. They weren't scattered. They weren't intermingled with the Gentiles. They were allowed to live together. And they had elders. They they even had a little bit of free reign among themselves. The elders were still in place. They could worship together. They had leadership over themselves under the Babylonian Empire. And here's what would happen. When the elders needed guidance, they would come to the prophet. And the prophet was to stand between the elders and God and communicate to God, as it were, what the elders wanted answered and report back to the elders what God had said. But there was a problem. The line was cut. They didn't have a real good reception. Something was wrong spiritually. And God explains it. Ezekiel chapter 14. And then some of the elders of Israel came to me, and they sat down before me, Ezekiel writes. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their what? In their hearts. In their what? In their hearts. Not in their bedrooms, not in their living rooms, not in their basements. In their hearts. And have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the manner in view of the multitude of his idols, a multitude of his idols. And by the way, that's the way it is with all of us. When we are committing idolatry, which I hope you'll see more clearly as we go on, it's usually not one thing in our life. It's like a Parthenon of deities. It may be the fear of man, maybe, uh, maybe one of your idols or the pleasing people, but it may also be comfort. 
It may be the lust of the flesh, it may be the pride of life. Your idol may be money, it may be power, it may be affection, it may be respect. Who knows what it is for you? But I guarantee it's not just one. It's a Parthenon of false deities in whom you trust and from whom you expect blessing. And that's the way it was with these elders. Verse 5, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are estranged from me through all of their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up idols in his heart. And puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. And I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from among my people. So you will know that I am the Lord. In other words so that you will submit to commandment number one, that you will have no other God before me. This is an important truth, brothers and sisters, but because though we don't live in a pagan society, technically, we, li- we do live in a pagan society spiritually. In fact, we tend to be a pagan people, though we don't care to admit it. Because we have a tendency to trust in things, to seek our joy in things, to pursue our pleasure in things that God hates. And to the degree that we look to those things for what God has promised to give us in his word, To that extent, we are idolaters. We are committing idolatry in our hearts. This gets really practical when I'm counseling people. We've got other counselors on staff, and you know, we just love this ministry of reconciliation with God that He's given us through this ministry. Because here's the thing whenever a marriage comes to me or to Brent or one of our counselors, that is in distress and sometimes right on the verge of divorce. I mean, this is their last step. They're out of money. They're in debt to the other counselors. And somebody said, hey, before you throw in the towel, would you just go talk to these folks? And it's free. See if they can help you. And we just start bringing the word of God upon, to bear upon their lives. And invariably, what we always find, because what we're always looking for is the idol in their heart, the idols. We want to see what it is that they're worshiping other than God. We want to to discover what it is that they expect to give them the blessing that God promises to give, or perhaps that God never promised to give. We want to find what they are trusting in, where they should be trusting in God. They may be trusting in their own feelings or in some philosophy of life that is contrary to God's word. But it all boils down to this. Somewhere in their life and in the way they relate to one another, they are allowing their own feelings, their own impressions, or some philosophy of some person who is not God to dictate for them how they should live, what they should believe, how they should trust, and where their source of joy will come from, rather than trusting in the promises of God in this book. This is life to us. This is life to us, and it always has been life ever since there was such a thing as the church. Because this is the way God has called us to live very practically from day to day to day. This is where our joy is found. This is where our satisfaction is found. It's in finding where in my life I don't measure up to God's word and I repent and conform to his word instead. And whenever that happens, there's reconciliation first with God 
And one of the benefits is that there's often reconciliation with one another. When two sinners get together in a marriage relationship, I guarantee you there's one thing that's definitely going to happen. They're going to sin. Just as surely as dogs bark, sinners sin. But God has provided the remedy of sin and all of its consequences, and that is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so God has called us to worship him and him only. And so we see idolatry, like all sin, is a matter of the heart. Idolatry happens anytime a person turns his deepest devotion, his deepest trust, his deepest affections away from God and onto something else that this life promises. Let's take a moment to remind ourselves of the greatest and foremost commandment in the Bible. It comes to us from Moses out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Jewish people call it the Shema, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is how many? One. And you shall, what's the next word? Love. Say it with me. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That means you give singular devotion to him. And so it is that the child of God should love God more than anything. And beloved, this is where idolatry begins. Because idolatry has to do with what we love most. What is it that we truly love? What is it that we truly want in this life. One of the key questions we ask our children when they sin against one another is not why did you do that, but what did you want? Because that exposes what's really happening in the heart. And I haven't had a one of them yet say what I really wanted was to please God. No, I, I really wanted that cookie. I wanted that seat. I always have to sit in the back. What is it that you want more than anything, more than loving God? Idolatry has to do with love, my love for God, my love for others, my love for the world. This is, these are all worship issues. And so when we look at idolatry in these terms, we come to realize that we are not so different from the people of the Old Testament and even today who bow down to graven images all around the world. If I love something more than I love God, I'm an idolater. If I trust something else when I should be trusting God, I am an idolater. When I let my life be ruled by something other than God, I am an idolater. Idolatry of the heart is is at the heart of every besetting sin with which we struggle. Idolatry is always at the heart of every besetting sin that we struggle with. Every one because it's really an issue of worship. Now, let me teach you something that I, it's very simple. I need simple. I don't know about you, I need simple. And this simple helps me. It's this. Every temptation is a call to worship. Every temptation is a call to worship. By God's grace, there are some times when I'm being tempted that I'm able to remember that. Every temptation is a call to worship. I will either worship God in that moment, which will be reflected by my obedience to his word, or I will worship some other God, some other functional savior, some other functional deity. Whereas I may have a formal theology and could defend the Trinity and transubstantiation and, you know, all that stuff, great, But you know what? If I were perfectly honest, there are moments in every single day of my life where my functional theology and my formal theology miss each other because I prefer to live in some other realm by some other rules in love with something other than Christ. 
The goal of the Christian life is to align every aspect of our thinking, our desires and everything with God's word. And to the extent that we do that, that is true worship. And you know what? Sometimes it's not all warm and fuzzy. It's not the fun family feeling that we get when we come and we, we worship and we raise our hands and we sing praises to God. That can be worship. There should be joy in worship. But you know what? Many times worship is agonizing because it involves sacrifice. Whereas we will say, rather than sacrificing to my own pleasure, which has a, has a desire to rule me, I rather to sacrifice my money, my time, my being to this person in need for Christ's sake, or to the church, or to some missionaries we long to support, or whatever it is. Sometimes we die to self, and that's no fun. And we do it as an act of worship to God, rather than living for our pleasures. You want to know who you worship? Look at your checkbook. Look at your day timer. Consider the things that you're thinking about when you wake up first thing in the morning. And what you're thinking about when you go to bed. Little indications as to what we truly worship. Let's consider a biblical example of this. If you would, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 30. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 30, you're familiar with the stories. Jacob um, loves Rachel. He marries Leah first because he got tricked. Leah is having baby after baby after baby. And the woman he loves is barren. She's not having any children. And Rachel feels that. She hates that. She wants a child. In fact, her, the thought of having a child, the promises of motherhood, the promises of um, no longer having the shame and reproach of being childless, oh, she loves that so much. She loves the thought of that so much. She's willing to sin to get it. And see if you see idolatry here. Genesis 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob went, Hmm? And his anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's place? Am I God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah, go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. Do you see worship here? How badly does she want a child? I want a child so bad I'm willing to sin against God and my husband and who cares who else to get it. This is worship. was that Rachel believed that there was one thing that, that she thought she could get that would make her happy, a child. Rachel's desire for children was so strong that it began to twist her thinking. And then notice what happened after Rachel finally had a son. What did she want? Verse 30, um, chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. And so she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And what would you say at that point? Would you say, praise God, I am satisfied. Lord, you've been so good to me. I was undeserving. Look at what she says. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. I'm still not satisfied, God. I mean, this is good. It's good. I want a child. But what I really worship is having more children than my sister. One child is not good enough. Children make a horrible God. Respect from your brothers and sisters is a horrible God. It's a tyrant. It demands things of you and makes promises that it cannot keep. 
And if you worship it, it will destroy you. Notice what happened. God eventually gave her another son, just as she wanted. But what happened as she was giving birth? Change, turn the page here. In fact, two pages in my Bible. Make it three. Verse 16 of chapter 35. And then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And she was, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. You see, beloved, just as she was dying, she named the boy, son of my sorrow. And then the thing that she worshipped brought about her death. Having children was something Rachel believed she had to have in order to bring her life contentment and satisfaction and security and significance and joy. Therefore, it was her functional God. And so you see, the issue of idolatry is some, it's something that applies to all of us. What do you long for so much that your heart clamors? Give me this or I will die. Is it more of Jesus? Is it that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, even if it takes my life? Or is it more money, more respect, more things? If the answer to that question is anything but God himself, then you, my friend, have a functional God. And you, my friend, are an idolater. Now let's think more deeply about what idolatry is and how it works. How is the relationship with a false god similar to a relationship to a true god? This is helpful, and I'm going to give you three things here. This is helpful in order for us to identify in our own hearts the false worship that is going on, that is leading us away from joyful fellowship with God and one another and leading us to destruction. Number one, we expect these gods to bless us. We expect these gods to bless us. What is it? Your job? Is it children? Is it homeschooling? Is it... No, it can't be homeschooling. <laughs> um, is it money? Is it power? Is it respect? It may be, I will be happy if I can only find a husband or a wife. I will be blessed if I can have career advancement. And what will make me happy is money or people liking me or a new house or a responsible, loving husband or an affectionate, respectful wife or obedient, well-educated kids, self-educated, self-parenting kids if possible. <laughs> the reality is we expect our, fu our functional gods to bless us. They promise us all kinds of things, and we believe them. It's worship. Secondly, we expect our functional gods to meet our needs, to meet our needs. And part of the twist here is that we've redefined needs. We've redefined needs so that a need is anything that I feel like I must have, which if you really compared it biblically, you would determine that it's not really a need there's another word in the Bible for it, lust. It's not a need, it's a lust. But we expect our functional gods to meet our needs. And we say things like, the only way to solve this problem is what? If God is merciful, if God is gracious to me, or is it, I got to get more money, I got to step in. I've got to manipulate. I've got to say what's on my mind. If the blank is filled 
by anything contrary to Scripture in terms of how to meet your needs, then you are worshiping an idol. If I believe that the loss of something in my life, listen, if I believe that the loss of something, anything in my life is unbearable and intolerable, then I have an idol. If you think that the loss of your husband is the end of your life, the loss of your wife is the end of your life, the loss of your girlfriend or your boyfriend is the end of your life, that you can't function if one of your child, children die or if you lose your job, or if somebody doesn't like you anymore, or you're not part of the in crowd at church or whatever, then you have a functional God, and you're an idolater. Thirdly, we know that we have a functional God when we are willing to let these gods rule us. If you are enslaved by any sinful habit or bound by any worldly philosophy that is contrary to Scripture, you are worshiping a false god. You're worshiping a false god. And spiritually, you're in danger. You're in danger. We see this all the time when people come for counsel. You know what? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's unusual. or I mean, it is bad. It's sinful. But I... But all of us, we, we all need to look to ourselves. When I say these things, I'm saying, I'm saying them because I see them in my own heart. You should see them in your own heart. But it comes out in the full light of day in counseling because people will come and they'll lay their problems down on the table, as it were, and we begin discussing them and we find out, oh, they've been taught psychology or the Christian version of psychology. And the word of God is over here, and their theology, which is a, really, psychology is a competing theology with the word of God. They're living over here, and they know all the lingo. And they've listened to all the talk show hosts, and they've gotten all the answers from the books that come out, all the self-help stuff. And they're living over here. And you know what? It's a big strain to get them over here because it's hard for them to admit that what I've really got is an idol. The reason that I've set up boundaries in my life is because I love something more than God. Did Jesus do that? Did Jesus do that? He's our example. And we allow these functional gods to rule us. Just ask any man who has a problem with the internet, goes anywhere near a computer and he starts to feel the pool. I want to quit. It just rules me. Talk to someone who's messing around with alcohol or drugs and they're stuck. They're addicted, as they say. It's a life-dominating sin. It rules them. It rules them. Fear of people, love of pleasure, anger. It rules them. And somewhere beneath all of that is the true God that they worship, the God that they truly worship, not the God of the Bible. So, beloved, you're sitting here this morning, and you've sung the songs, and you've listened to the scriptures, and you call yourself a Christian, as I do. But let me tell you something perhaps you haven't thought of. You may be an idolater. You may be an idolater. Now, you've seen those things circling on the internet. You might be a redneck if. You might be a homeschooler if. Well, how about this? You might be, you might be an idolater if. I'm going to list several things. You might be an idolater if you're reluctant to share the gospel for fear that people, of what people will think of you. Maybe what you really are ruled by is your reputation. You might be an idolater if you frequently find yourself daydreaming about your next snack or meal or cup of coffee. Ouch. <laughs> you might be an idolater when, if when you turn on the internet you feel a strong compulsion to visit sites that no Christian should ever see. You might be an, idol an idolater if you are so devoted to your career that your wife and children begin to think that the man that they see in their house on the weekend is renting a room. 
You might be an idolater if you skip church or other important opportunities to love and serve other people and worship God in order to watch a ball game. You may be an idolater if the people closest to you believe that your life's motto is a phrase similar to this, my way or the highway. You might be an idolater if you plan your evening schedule around your favorite TV program. Or if you look at Facebook more than five times before breakfast. Might. I'm not saying you are. I'm just might. You might be an idolater if your commitment to protect your bottom line makes you a reluctant giver. You're more concerned about your financial plan and becoming financially independent than you are about being generous and sacrificial. You might be an idolater if the thought of losing something or someone in your life fills you with anxiety or despair. You might be an idolater if what you believe will make you truly happy in this life, listen, if what you believe will make you truly happy in this life is something that you don't already have. Someone after the first service gave me a list of more. You might be an idolater, kids, if you spend more time playing computer games than reading God's word. You might be an idolater if you analyze the stock market more than you analyze scripture. You might be an idolater if you have memorized more lines from movies than you have texts of scripture. You might be an idolater if when you are anxious, your first instinct is to go to the medicine cabinet rather than to the throne of grace. And some people, it's health. Health is their God. And pain rules them. You might be an idolater if you care more about the wins and losses of your favorite team than the winning of the souls of the lost. And ultimately, you're an idolater, and so am I, whenever I am willing to sin to obtain a goal or a desire, or if I'm willing to sin if I cannot obtain it. In such cases, our desires have taken God's place, and they have become our functional saviors. And they always let us down. Perhaps that's why John wrote at the very 